Welcome to Plural Space, Conversations in Lung Cancer. In this new limited series entitled The Power of Partnerships, we connect medical professionals and patients across the care continuum for real conversations about lung cancer. Each episode will focus on one facet of this complicated field and feature the people striving to make it better. Hello, everyone. This is Jamie Stutz, a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and the University of Colorado Cancer Center. And I'm here with two wonderful colleagues, Dr. Jamie Ostroff and Dr. Lisa Carter from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center to talk about lung cancer stigma. And as we get going, I just wanted to give folks a little bit of an opportunity to introduce themselves as well, but to ask them to start thinking about What does lung cancer stigma mean to you as a clinician scientist, and what motivates you to be involved in this type of work in terms of research and clinical roles and advocacy? Jamie L.? Thanks, Jamie. And really my pleasure to chat with you about this important topic and the listeners. So I am a behavioral scientist, uh, chief of the behavioral science service at Sloan Kettering. And what I think motivates me about this work is that I have a career dedicated to tobacco treatment and reducing the morbidity and mortality associated with tobacco. And it has only been in the last decade that I have fully appreciated the unintended consequences of our effective tobacco control interventions. And so I now am really glad to embrace clinical research and teaching activities that really bridge the importance of respect and compassion for all individuals, regardless of their tobacco history, but continue to push the needle in terms of reducing morbidity and mortality associated with tobacco use. I'm Lisa Carter, and I'm also a behavioral scientist and work with Jamie Ostroff at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I'm also a clinician. I'm a nurse practitioner by training, and I still see patients one day a week. But I actually got very interested in stigma and how it impacts lung cancer during my doctoral program. I was very fortunate enough to attend a health policy training workshop. At the time, it was known as the Lung Cancer Alliance, now the GoTo Foundation. And I remember sitting there and listening to a survivor talk about their experience being diagnosed with lung cancer and feeling like they were being blamed for their disease process. And I thought to myself, this is a social injustice. You know, if somebody tells us that they had a heart attack, we don't look at them and say, oh, you're not vegan, you don't run every day. But if someone tells you they have lung cancer, automatically the first thing to come out of a person's mouth is, oh, I didn't know you smoked. And we're attributing blame to an individual for a disease process that is very deadly and it's just not right. So that's that's why I got very passionate about this area. And it totally changed my world when I went and heard that person speak. You know, the thing I like about that and I can really relate to is this is a space where the advocates and the survivors have really spearheaded, you know, knuckleheads have been a little bit slow to the game in this, in terms of wrapping our heads around just how 
divisive and alienating and othering some of the language that we use as conventions in our daily clinical practice, in our clinical notes that we write, in our public campaigns and messaging. And this is where, you know, sitting back and listening to lung cancer survivors, individuals at high risk, and the advocacy community has really move the needle and help make a lot more people aware of this challenge. I mean, I think we still have a long ways to go. There's no doubt about that. But I think that has been a really key touchstone for all of this work. I couldn't agree more with you, Jamie. I sort of feel as though I remember, you know, the sting when I gave a lecture at a national meeting and there was time for Q&A and, you know, I answered all of the scientific questions about my PowerPoint, my P-values, and then there really was a patient diagnosed with lung cancer, an advocate who really just made me, you know, you sort of say, oh, that's a very good question. And then you sort of try to come up with a response. But I really thank this person for sort of bringing me to a point of reflection where I thought much with humility about the unintended consequences of our, that words matter, that our language matter professionally and personally. And I couldn't agree more that this work, what makes it so rich and why I'm so optimistic that we'll be able to change culture and climate is because this really has been a true partnership between clinicians, investigators, and patients, all of whom want to promote compassion and competent care for individuals affected with lung cancer. I think one of the things that I've experienced is going back to things I've written that will be in the public record for eternity and seeing the way I frame things. And there's a lot of cringeworthy stuff in there. But rather than being too down about that, I really hope that it turned that into sort of a learning opportunity. And we have some new tools that, that can help guide folks who are just kind of getting on board with some of this initiative. And thanks to Jill Feldman and her leadership, we now have the language guide. Lisa, what's the language guide to you? The language guide is a manifestation of everything that we've been thinking for the past several years about the way that we should interact with our patients. It's about empathic communication, which Ostroff can tell you more about. It's about empowering patients and respecting patients. You know, I think about as we talk about this language guide and using person-first language, so people are not labeled by a behavior. You're not a smoker. You're a person who smokes, honoring that language. I think about the potential pushback that you could get from journals or different things because of the word count. But I also think about other words, which I won't say on this podcast, that used to be common in our lexicon. And I think about how those have changed. And with a little thought and meaningful interpretation, you can really honor these wonderful individuals by not stigmatizing them further with the language. Yeah. And one thing I'll say, just a follow up on that in terms of the language guide is words matter and discussions matter. And so, you know, around the same time, a group of colleagues published a commentary in Nicotine and Tobacco Research, which is really one of the lead journals for the tobacco control community. 
In this commentary, our goal was to raise awareness about the language that we use to describe individuals. Again, in our case, this was very much about the stigma associated with smoking and how our words other and demean and reduce dignity of individuals that we're working with. And I was thrilled that the leadership of this journal embraced this point of view. And I would say this is the beginning. So these publications and these podcasts like this, our supreme hope is that these create dialogues and discussions about the implications of our language on our clinical care and on the field. And so I I just want to say, I think that it's really an exciting inflection point to think about this sort of aha moments when we realize the sort of cringeworthy instances that Jamie is talking and the coming together of like-minded people who want to see a change in how we do our work. I agree with you, Jamie. And I think that it feels different this time. The language guide is just one more piece of evidence that it feels like there's a groundswelling of support around not only acknowledging and speaking out into the universe that stigma is an issue in lung cancer, but the fact that we need to address it from multiple venues. And there's a handful of us who've been in this work for the past decade or a couple of decades or so, but it hasn't been as huge of a group. There's all of these people that have come together. They're very diverse, whether they're patients or clinicians or scientists or administrators that have come together to say this is a problem and how do we tackle it? And it just feels very different this time. I am struck by the fact, and I've always been struck by the fact that I understand how lung cancer stigma was born inadvertently and the unintended consequences of, you know, tobacco cessation campaigns, etc. But if you think about it, 50 years ago, smoking was common practice. It was a rite of passage. It was normal. And then when we tackled tobacco as a public health issue, unintentionally, we created the stigma around a disease that's associated with smoking. So how do we reverse that? without reversing the strides that we made with tobacco treatment, how do we reverse the actual stigmatization? What do we do in the public health space to change this? And I think part of it is the language guide. Part of it are the other strategic pieces of the strategic plan, but it's bigger than that. We always are confronted with the fact that aggressive tobacco control has worked. You know, it's, it's achieved this outcomes. Why do we need to change? Well, you say, why do we have to change? Because we're dealing with people and human beings and stigma has real impact on patient outcomes and depression and the fact if they're even going to have a conversation with a clinician about screening, if they're going to show up when they have symptoms. You know, I'm recounting all of the different things I've talked with patients about in different studies, but I know what you're saying because, Jamie, oh, you're the card-carrying tobacco researcher on this call, but the tobacco campaigns that are loss-framed are more successful in people quitting. So I'll add to this conversation a couple of points. One is I really don't think this is an either-or. It's an and. We can do effective tobacco control policy and guidelines without 
stigmatizing individuals who are addicted to nicotine. And what I would add to this also is that, you know, we have 50 plus years of successful tobacco control and science also improves our messaging. And we now in the current dialogue realize that one size doesn't fit all in health communication messaging and that we need to have more nuanced messaging to address populations that have not responded to, you know, the single, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And so what I'm delighted to see is newer messaging and campaigns, including the one that the National Lung Cancer Roundtable will be supporting that looks at describing the benefits of quitting, describing that every attempt to quit counts and that individuals learn from their prior experiences, recognizing that, you know, you catch more flies with honey, that as a clinician, you are much more likely to be effective engaging somebody in a tobacco dialogue if you acknowledge the struggle, honor their prior attempts, and then have a meaningful discussion about how you can support their efforts. Yeah, just to set the record state, I completely support and agree with everything that you've said. But I just felt like, you know, that's one of the most common retorts to efforts to change. And I fully believe that empathy and compassion and support can be infused more effectively, even in some of our current campaigns to achieve really good outcomes. And we have to understand the harms of our health communications as well. We can't just pretend that they don't exist, but we have to monitor those and make sure that we are understanding both the benefits or positive outcomes from our health communication campaigns, be they mass marketing or more targeted or tailored in addition to benefits as well as the potential harms. And now more than ever, you know, I think that as we run themes of equity through all of the work we do, this is definitely an area where we need to be mindful of the importance of engaging a broad spectrum of the population, you know, who doesn't need to be told once again that smoking is bad and sort of walk away from that feeling that smokers are bad. They need compassionate, empathic support and help. More and more, I see anti-stigma campaigns and anti-stigma clinician interventions as being part and parcel in promoting equitable tobacco treatment and lung cancer prevention and lung cancer early detection and treatment for all. One of the things that we've all kind of highlighted here is that groundswell of, and that spans support from lots of different groups. And this has really culminated in the National Lung Cancer Roundtable's continued passion and commitment to generating a campaign to end lung cancer stigma. And that does include a diverse array of stakeholders and constituents and groups that have accomplished a great deal to set a foundation. You know, Lisa mentioned the Lung Cancer Alliance, now the GoTo Foundation, has done terrific work to highlight lung cancer stigma. But other organizations have similarly, American Lung Association, Longevity, 
really terrific advocacy organizations that are behind a lot of these efforts. But bringing those together, the National Lung Cancer Roundtable and the Campaign to End Lung Cancer Stigma really creates this opportunity of a federation of sorts, I think. We spent a lot of time generating the fundamentals. You know, we believe that empathy and optimism and urgency are sort of the key themes of what we're trying to do. Those are our levers that we want to be using to change this landscape, to change society, because clinical efforts are important. But really, in order to change this, we need a societal level transformation in how we see tobacco and its complex relationship with lung cancer and other illnesses, many other illnesses. And to make that story richer and more complex than the simple story that we have about tobacco leads to lung cancer and lung cancer outcomes aren't that great. You know, they've never been that great. And so we have this nihilism or fatalism that sort of pervades our culture. And so we sort of have a danger of a double story to think about how do we address those things? Because we've got optimism being infused with all these innovations in care that are coming on board, where lung cancer care is really leading the way in oncology with regard to innovations, immunotherapies, and targeted therapies and things. But the culture change needs to happen around stigma. So what about the campaign to end lung cancer stigma is exciting to you guys? Or what do we need to know about this campaign going forward? I guess the one simple one I'll just say to me is the federation is to me, it's the crosstalk among different stakeholders who with respect and commitment and agency are feeling as though this is something that we can do something about. And the second thing I would say is, you know, I think that we've come together to realize that it's a nuanced discussion and our human brains work really hard to simplify things. We love, you know, either or, yes, no, seven plus or minus two is all we can remember. But I think that what I love about the campaign to end lung cancer is that we recognize it's going to take multiple levels of interventions, lots of stakeholders, and it will be a process of change. And I'm thrilled to be, you know, working with the two of you and others in the roundtable to really see these important changes. One of the ideas that I believe has been fundamental to helping us understand the full scope and impact, as well as the opportunity to change, has been Dr. Heidi Heyman's work, not only on the structure of stigma and understanding it, but making sure we apply that socio-ecological model to understand the entire context of lung cancer stigma, from the society level down to the family interaction, as well as this, I did this to myself, thinking that can be common among some individuals following a diagnosis. You know, I think that that socio-ecological model or that complex understanding of how all this stuff interacts at different levels within our healthcare systems and our clinicians and our communications, you know, all over the place, it actually creates opportunities to work at different levels. If you had to choose one level, would there be a level that you would prioritize in terms of working on the lung cancer stigma challenge? Or is that foolish? I don't think it's possible to just work at one level to be effective with addressing lung cancer stigma. I think that it has to be a multi-level approach, a multi-pronged approach, because just like we didn't get here overnight, (laughs) it's going to 
take us a while, but, you know, one intervention is not going to fix this. One media campaign is not going to fix this. It's a combination and a synergy between all of the interventions that we plan to do at those different levels of the socioecological model to address stigma. I did want to say that when you were talking about the campaign, I think the one thing that I was really excited about are the themes, urgency, empathy, and optimism, because it captures where we need to be. This is urgent. We don't have more time to continue to have stigma be the elephant in the room. It's something that we need to acknowledge and need to address, but that's getting off on a tangent, so. No, I don't think that's really much of a tangent at all, because that also highlights the fact of how much community engagement, community involvement has gone on. And those three themes came from a summit that was sponsored by the American Cancer Society and the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. For many of us, that was sort of the last professional interactive activity that we did in February of 2020 before the pandemic. But the discussion was so impressive from those different stakeholder groups and really coalesced around those three themes as those levers that we can manipulate and use. And I think they're so tightly connected together because they build on each other. Part of the reason we have this optimism is all the innovation. And that also connects to the urgency because the time is now where we're kind of riding this wave of enthusiasm and optimism and hope to really make some transformative changes internally in terms of I'm thinking about sort of the clinical research context, but also externally in terms of societal impact. You can't see folks, but I'm putting my hand up so that Jamie knows that I'm dying to say something here. But I wanted to come back to your previous question about what are we really, you know, enthusiastic about in terms of the levels of intervention. And I'll just add that I am particularly enthusiastic these days about collaborating with clinicians who treat patients at risk for lung cancer and individuals diagnosed with lung cancer, and particularly clinicians who have kind of a well-intended agenda to assess tobacco use, advise cessation, and support cessation. And the work that I'm doing with a communication scientist colleague, Dr. Smita Banerjee, is work that I'm enthusiastic about as that we've developed some smart phrases and skills and really simple takeaways that well-intended clinicians can use to effectively promote tobacco treatment in the lung cancer prevention and treatment space, but do so with greater appreciation for how their interventions or how their words land and recognizing that the words we choose in our clinical consultations are words that reverberate in the car ride home, around the dinner table, when we're quietly contemplating, when patients are quietly contemplating what they need to do to cope with their illness. And so the words Words clinicians use are mattered, and I'm particularly enthusiastic about promoting changes in the way clinicians discuss tobacco use as a lever to reduce stigma. I think that's perfect and wholeheartedly agree with you, but I do think we would be remiss if we don't talk about the fact that there are so many people who are diagnosed with lung cancer who have never smoked, but they still experience lung cancer stigma because there's the assumption that they smoke and it's detrimental to patient treatment and patient outcomes. Smoker is not an identity. 
And until we are able to move that needle, I think that we'll still have work to do. But I think a lot of the things with the campaign are addressing moving that needle in the right direction. Not just never smokers, but former smokers, right? And, you know, we need to acknowledge that while there is a risk-reducing factor associated with lung cancer, it's not the only risk factor. It's not either or, it's and. So can I call you on your language you just used? Yeah, sure. The never smoker, former smoker. Yeah, yeah. See, we are not immune. (laughs) Right. We joke about this in our staff meetings when we present cases to each other. I regularly would say, like, if you mess up, you got to put a dollar and and buy a round of drinks. And I'll tell you, is when you get enthusiastic about talking, you just slip into your old lexicon. And thank you for calling me out on it. No disrespect taken. It's an important piece, and it's about a climate that we can all create in helping and and supporting each other achieve better equity, because this is important in so many ways. So many of our professional societies have worked toward bridging and eliminating the gap between clinicians and researchers and patients and individuals in the community. And this type of language is something that has to be overcome in order to decrease the length of that bridge. The engagement and the collaboration can be achieved more effectively if we're eradicating this and other terminology. The language guide is a part to address stigma, but there are other sort of negativistic language that is common in our clinical discussions and in our notes and other things that we can also work on. So if you have a chance, take a look at that language guide and reflect on that a little bit. I know I've had a chance to look at it a couple more times as well and find a few more pieces to think about. I have been impressed by the scope of interest and the different ways to use the language guide more broadly and how it could impact our science, but also our clinical care. One of the other things that I'm excited about is something that I think can work at the systems level about how we communicate about some of these complex relationships. And that's kind of what we're temporarily calling the lung cancer stigma biopsy. And we use that biopsy terminology to sort of get into the idea of lung cancer care. But the essential element of this is sort of a self-reflective process for healthcare systems, for advocacy organizations, for scientists to take a look at the terminology, but also the imagery that we use when we communicate to the public or other colleagues about tobacco or about lung cancer and to be mindful of how we do that. And one of the examples that I always think about is the work that's being done to try to enhance engagement with lung cancer screening. And one of the things that I think is a big mistake in terms of our communication is that there's a lot of times we see public campaigns and and the use of tobacco imagery in the lung cancer screening landscape. And if you think about it, there is that rational connection, but yet there's no need for it. In many ways, that kind of imagery actually unmotivates someone or moves someone in the other direction. And so 
when you're designing a local campaign or a marketing effort to expand access to your lung cancer screening program, there's no reason to have tobacco smoke in the background as an image or in the B-roll of your video. Those aren't compelling images. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of the candidate for lung cancer screening that we're trying to engage. And that's just not engaging imagery for many of those folks. And so the theme of the lung cancer stigma biopsy overall is to be reflective in the words imagery that we use for these various things and to provide alternatives. The stigma biopsy would hopefully help organizations in terms of think about their communication and how they work with these communities of either individuals at risk or individuals diagnosed. Now, of course, that work is still in development, but it is something that excites me that give us a chance to work at a slightly different level to build on that multi-level perspective that Lisa was mentioning. Obviously, we need to be working with clinicians. Obviously, we need to be working with community levels. Obviously, we need to be supporting individuals who were diagnosed with lung cancer and helping them cope with some of the stigmatizing comments that they may receive and how to provide them or help them develop the tools to deal with those kinds of situations. Yeah, one of the things that I'm enthusiastic about supporting your initiative around the stigma biopsy is, you know, I think that it's one thing to say sort of, you know it when you see it. And we've heard that phrase around other things that are offensive. But I think what I really like about the stigma biopsy is your effort to really get down into the cellular level, if you will, looking at words, phrases, imagery, choices that we make in our communication so that we can provide guidance for well-intended hospital administrators, marketing, advertising, clinicians. You know, all they really want to do is engage high-risk individuals in considering screening. And I feel as though the work that you're leading and that the roundtable is supporting will help us go beyond awareness to action steps. No, that's a really important point about the campaign to end lung cancer stigma is that we did spend about a year on the strategic framework development, and then that has helped identify four key elements, you know, reframing lung cancer is kind of work that we hope to do at a societal level to help make our story more accurate in terms of its true complexity of the lung cancer community is far more complex than the simple stories that society understands. But we also have you know, work to do on mitigating some of the consequences of stigma with regard to enhancing lung cancer survivorship. And while that sounds like it's limited to survivors, it's actually not. To improve survivorship in mass, we need to help people have access to lung cancer screening, to evidence-based tobacco treatments, and to reducing stigma as a barrier to each one of those things, helping folks have access to biomarker testing when it's appropriate, okay. clinical trial access when it's appropriate, evidence-based survivorship and palliative care programs when it's appropriate, and that stigma is something that can serve as that dark cloud that prevents us from really optimizing all of those evidence-based interventions that we have at our disposal. Another element of the campaign is the educational aspect. And, you know, the empathic communication training effort is a key element of that for work with clinicians. But there are other educational components to how do we revise our tobacco control messaging to infuse empathy for children? 
Because a lot of tobacco risk reduction and tobacco prevention happens at a very young age. And how do we change that to be less stigmatizing, less fear-based and infuse empathy? And of course, those are ideas and time is going to, it's going to take some time to achieve all that. But those are vital components of transforming the societal perspective on lung cancer and lung cancer stigma. And then the final aspect of the campaign is to do some self-reflection on the funding and advocacy efforts. Lung cancer has benefited from research and a lot of innovations, but we still have a fairly narrow vision of what the landscape of lung cancer research looks like. You know, it's a lot of bench science and it's a lot of clinical trials very important pieces of clinical and translational science. But there's a key element that's missing. We're not making sure that our communities have access to these innovations. So we need implementation science in lung cancer to be funded at a higher level. You know, of course, that's an opinion. But yet to really drive the community-wide changes in lung cancer prevention and control, that implementation is the key element. And of course, there are other sciences like symptom science and quality of life and behavioral science that can be supported at a broader level to make sure that we're all benefiting from this broader definition of scientific innovation in the lung cancer space. And so to do that, we hope to do some portfolio analyses of what is being funded by different organizations and agencies to try to push the level. And then to think about our campaigns a little bit differently or advocacy or our lobbying efforts a little bit differently in terms of look at how much we've achieved what could we achieve with additional support or a bit more equitable support for lung cancer research in this space? So that kind of puts the campaign in a little bit broader context and a little bit more specific with some of the areas where we have focused. What do you think about the goal of the campaign to end lung cancer stigma? You know, it's right there in the title. The campaign hopes to end lung cancer stigma. Too broad, impossible. What do you guys think? It's not impossible. I mean, maybe I'm a glass half full or rose-colored glasses kind of person, but things happen and they can unhappen. So (laughs) stigma uh, that's associated with lung cancer, we can change it. I mean, think about, you know, back in the 80s and the HIV AIDS epidemic and how individuals were treated and how they were called AIDS patients. But now we have people saying individuals diagnosed with HIV and there's less stigma than there was, you know, in the 1980s. I do think that we can end lung cancer stigma. I think that it's going to take a lot of different people at a lot of different levels, but that's why I feel like this groundswell is so important at this point in time, because I think it's the right time and the right place with the right people to address this issue. And I look forward to being old and looking back and saying lung cancer stigma doesn't exist. Yeah, I'll add on to that. I've never been accused of being a pessimist. And I think that this campaign is appropriately ambitious, that we are aiming high and thinking concretely with action steps. And I think that, you know, you've got to aim high in order to really see meaningful change and that we're not going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But I'm really delighted to put 
you know, what is probably the last chapter of my career towards really looking back in the rearview mirror and thinking about that we've changed the dialogue about lung cancer towards empathy, compassion, and cure. You know, I think that those themes that we've been talking about have just been sort of recapitulated in our kind of closing comments. You know, the fact that we do have this optimism that it can change, the fact that the empathy is something that is going to guide us and the time is now. There is no more time to wait. And I think this is a huge cue and the groundswell of support gives us so much encouragement that these changes can be made. I can't help but you know, appreciate all the comments and time that you dedicated to having this discussion. And I'll close with giving the opportunity to see if there are any final comments that you'd like to make. Lisa? I guess I just want to reiterate the fact that smoker is not an identity and that patient first language is so important and it needs to permeate at all levels of scientific writing, of popular writing, so that we can continue to move the needle toward ending lung cancer stigma. I'll just really close by saying I really endorse the closing comment Lisa just made. And, you know, it's also a special honor and privilege to work with colleagues like yourselves and the broader group of the roundtable, knowing that this work feels meaningful, purposeful, and frankly, looking forward to the successes in the near future. Great points. And to close, I think I'll expand the group of people who have been engaged in this. We have clinical partners, professional organizations, advocacy organization. Importantly, industry partners have been vital toward understanding and helping to move the needle and providing support and initiatives and opportunities to address lung cancer stigma. I do think that addressing lung cancer stigma is an opportunity to raise all boats. That as we diffuse the dark cloud of lung cancer stigma at an individual level, system level, and societal level, that everybody is going to see improved outcomes and benefit from this. Thank you guys for your time. Thank you for the American Cancer Society and the National Lung Cancer Roundtable for all the energy, commitment, and resources that have been allocated to developing this campaign and to end lung cancer stigma and to help provide the resources to take the next steps of intervention design and then disseminating and evaluating these things to see if we can actually see cultural level, healthcare system level, and individual level change addressing lung cancer stigma as a barrier to achieving optimal lung cancer prevention control. Thanks, guys. Plural Space is a joint production by the American College of Radiology and the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. Episodes were produced by Hannah Burson, with series production assistance by Tiffany Gowan, Lauren Rosenthal, and Kenley Byrne. Editing of this series is by Port City Films. A webinar on this episode's topic, as well as additional information, can be found at the link in the episode description. 